Welcome to Congregation, a podcast about religion, belonging, and finding your place in the world as a young person. In this episode, I chat with Simran Jeet Singh, a professor and activist who lives in New York. He also jumps into discussions of race and religion that happen online. Yeah, I have a tendency to spend a lot of time on Twitter, so. Also, he's sick, which has made him stand out, especially as a kid in South Texas. You know, I've, I heard growing up regularly, especially from soccer and basketball referees, uh, who would say, you know, we can't let you play because uh, we don't know what you're hiding under there. You could have grenades in there. You could have bombs in there. There are all sorts of knives, all sorts of accusations we heard over the years. We talked about why growing up religious can make you way too passive, the surprising reason he's a runner, and why a lot of six have the same last names. So I don't understand a ton about Sikhism. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what it means for your life, what it means to be sick. Yeah, sure. Um, I, uh, I I was born and raised in a Sikh family, and so that's really where my my personal story begins. And you know, we we grew up in in an area where there weren't many Sikhs. We were in we were in South Texas. My father was the first turban Sikh, um, and so from a young age, uh, we were in a position where we. Uh, had to be able to explain what our religion was in a way that most kids don't have to. We were put in a position where we had to learn basic, you know, prayers and music that, so that we could lead uh, services in our community. And so I would say that our engagement started at a really young age uh, and we were relatively active. My real sort of appreciation for the tradition probably began when I started studying the Sikh worldview in more depth uh, as a college student. Uh, that's where my interest in studying religion really began. And I would, you know, I was studying various world religions, um, and I started to find that the logic um, of Sikhism was, <laughs> was, was reflective of how I thought and viewed the world. And, you know, I'm sure much of that has to do with the fact that I was raised in a Sikh family. Uh, so my logic and my worldview is shaped by that. Um, but then to sort of, I, I, I never really had a sense of it, um, at least the sick elements there. And, and so when I started to learn about where those ideas were coming from and how much they made sense to me, that's, that's really where my, my initial connection uh, with the faith began. I mean, not initial connection, but a deeper connection, we can say. And I guess, you know, what I found most compelling was recognizing that the worldview, unlike we see with a lot of religious outlooks, uh, the Sikh worldview does not put forward any sort of binary view of the world. There's no concept of good versus evil or pure versus profane, you know, heaven versus hell, these sorts of things that uh, religions have often put forward as ways of explaining difficulties in this world. And instead, what I found with Sikhism was a worldview of, of absolute oneness, that everything is connected. All people are connected. The entire creation, the entire creation is connected. Uh, and that connection happens through a singular force that we call ikonkar, vaiguru, and that you know essentially is our idea of the divine. 
But this, this notion of interconnectedness and absolute rejection of, of divisions and binaries, I found very compelling. So in Sikhism, the way you understand it, what are you called to do in your life? I think I think at the end of the day, if I if I had to boil it down, it would be to go beyond these perceptions of division we have in our lives and to acknowledge and realize the oneness of the world. And, you know, in theory, that sounds easy, but it's really hard to live that, especially when suffering is real and pain is real. And so how can you see divinity in something that's difficult especially in relation to things that are good and easy. And so I think that's that's the core of it. The way that that translates is in in our tradition there's a lot of language around the idea of love. So when you have a deep personal connection to everything around you and everything you experience and observe reminds you of that oneness, then that is essentially the experience of love. And so that's, I think that is, that is one way in which we can see these ideas translate into sick ethos, into sick living. And then the, the corollary to that is when you recognize the reality of suffering and difficulty, but you also recognize your connection to all of that, there's a call for, for justice, for service, and the idea of eradicating suffering, or at least helping those who are enduring suffering. So these ideas of service and justice, they become core aspects of, of sick practice as well. What, what, you know, what our tradition teaches us is that one is not fully practicing as a religious being if they are just internally focused or, or, or you know, meditating in, with spirit. Uh, it has to be a full body experience. It has to be service and justice for those who are around you. Yeah, that's something I've encountered in my own church. Um, I go to a denomination called the United Church. There's an emphasis on not taking the Christian scriptures literally and understanding them as part of how God wants us to live our lives. And because of that, there's a big focus in my church, like you said, on going outward and that your commitment as a Christian means nothing if you're not using those teachings or what God is calling you to do to improve the world around you. So it sounds like there's some similarities there. Yeah, I think so. And and you'll see this in various traditions that and, and you'll see it if you if you look at prophetic leaders who religious folk admire, right? It's the the prophetic leaders religious figures are not those who are just up there talking about their beliefs or professing or preaching. They're the ones who are out there in the fields doing the work. And whether that's on the basis of of community organizing or physical rebellion, you know, there's there's something about the connection between religion and activism that's really powerful. And and I think that's an important part of of of, you know, religious organizing generally. You said there's this sense of being connected to things that are difficult, that are painful, and that you feel compelled to connect with those things, to take action on things that are difficult. What specifically in your life have you taken on that 
helps you fulfill that? Yeah, it's 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 a good question, and um, yeah, I I I don't want to give off the impression that this is something that's easy for me and so or something that I've mastered. You know, there are still challenges in my life that I that I find uh, incredibly uh, difficult and and unhappy. You know, there are things that happen where I don't feel the presence of God within those moments, and 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 it's a struggle. I guess. One of one of the challenges that is relatively unique to our community, but certainly not un- unique in the sense of there's there's a broader shared experience, is that of of uh, discrimination and racism. And so this is something that I endure, that people of my community endure, and and that people of other communities endure. And you know my approach to dealing with it is that one uh we have to confront it head on and and root it out right like really address it at its core and so i don't shy away from it but sometimes it gets it gets tough because if you deal with something like that on a day-to-day basis it really it really becomes draining and so how can you how can one maintain a positive spirit in in the Sikh tradition we call that jardikala uh, eternal optimism. How can someone maintain a positive spirit? Make sure that they're doing things in the right for the right reasons, right? Not lashing out in anger or frustration. You know, those are those are tough things to do. And you know, I I try to deal with these issues uh, with as much grace and dignity as I can on the basis of what my of what my Sikh faith teaches me. But sometimes it's not so easy, right? Like there are there are moments for sure uh, where I don't where I don't necessarily react or express the values that I that I wish I could always maintain with me. I mean, well, you're human. And if you're confronted with something that happens to you or to someone else that's painful or insulting, the default is not to respond in a gracious way. You're going to be upset and feel vulnerable and that's challenging. Yeah, for sure. And and you know, it's it's tough because when you when you hold these as ideals, you know, as as something you truly aspire to achieve, then it becomes doubly frustrating because when you when you react in a way that's not necessarily in accordance with your values, then you get frustrated with yourself and you say, "Why did I do this? Or why did I do that?" You know, it's like the easiest example that people can relate to is is a diet, right? Like you work out, you eat healthy, you eat healthy, and then something tempts you. Uh, and you give in, and then you know, ten minutes later, you're like, "Why did I give in? I shouldn't have done that." So it really is this sort of practice of self-cultivation through discipline, right? Like, and and this is what I tell people who ask me. You know, people ask me all the time, "How do you deal with what you deal with all the time?" And I say, you know, this is this is something I've been practicing since I was a kid, right? Like, these are experiences that I've had, and I've had the opportunity to cultivate responses based on the values that I've developed. Uh, and that's not, you know, they're not my own inventions. It's through my family, through my faith. What are the ideal responses? How do I want to be as a person? But still, you know, it, you, you come up short sometimes. Uh, and, and, and that's still as frustrating as ever. I've encountered this in the sense that I was raised to try and have a gracious response to different situations and to try not to react with anger. 
and to try to see the good in every situation and not to inconvenience people. And I think on one level, I saw that as, well, that's the Christian way to react, is to try and diffuse the situation internally and not react with anger. But I think in some ways, maybe I misinterpreted that because now what I'm struggling with as an adult is this idea that I can react assertively to something, not in anger, not in a way that hurts anyone else, but I have trouble reacting in a way that's always empowering, if that makes any sense. And I think sometimes maybe being raised in a religious context you're sort of taught to just take your lumps and deal with it as opposed to reacting in a way that might allow you to feel more confident about how it turned out. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think, you know, especially in, in, in our modern context, we have this this problematic conflation of, of love and justice uh, with with passivity. And and what I mean by that is is we have been taught as people of faith that to have a loving response is to is to accept whatever is put on you and not respond in any way and i and i actually think that's you know i i i think that's deeply troubling and and the reason why is because when we do that in situations of injustice right if we accept injustice that is heaped upon us then accepting that for what it is and not responding is actually accepting injustice and that is not furthering the spread of love in any way right in our tradition love and justice go hand in hand and so it is not acceptable for us to simply accept injustice we have to we we feel a responsibility to step forward and so there is <laughs> there is there's is a critique that comes with that right like how can you call yourself a loving person if you are being assertive. That's what people say to us, and that's what you're describing. Um, and my response to that is simply, I am confronting the injustice in order to help eradicate it and to help establish love. And, you know, people people don't always understand that. Um, they don't understand that resistance can be a form of love. They don't understand that pushing back can come from the motivation of love. But, you know, at the end of the day, for me, the way that I try and do things in my life, at least, and my activism is is make sure that I'm trying to do the right things for the right reasons. And at the end of the day, I, you know, that's that's how I answer to myself. Is there an example of something that happened to you where you reacted in a way that you felt good about afterwards? Yeah, uh, I <laughs> There, there are plenty, uh, and there are plenty where I felt bad about. And so, I can I can give you an example from very recently that actually captures both. I was I, I live in New York City, and I was walking down the street, and and I was walking by this elderly black woman who was calling me uh, racial slurs, and she was yelling them at me from across the street, and I had no idea how to react. And it's especially complicated because here's a person of color, you know, essentially calling out another person of color and, and I was very uncomfortable how to respond. So I didn't. I just ignored it and kept going and I was I was bothered by it for a couple of days and eventually I asked my friends, I said, How would you respond? And I collected their input and and got some good ideas, got some bad ideas, and essentially figured out for myself how I would respond next time something like that happened. 
and a week later, less than a week later, I was running from my office at NYU back to my home. So I was running along the river on the west side of Manhattan, and a teenager started yelling uh, racial slurs at me. And it was, <laughs> I found myself reacting in the same way as I had before. I was just ignoring it, uh, wasn't going to say anything. Actually passed him about 50 yards before I realized that, you know, this is my opportunity to react in the way that I want to. Uh, so I stopped, I turned around, I went back and had a conversation with the young man, you know, and it was it was a frank conversation. I wasn't deferential. I wasn't, I, I was assertive, kind of like what we were talking about before. And uh, and I wasn't happy. I was stern. And I, and I explained to him why what he was saying was wrong and why it's unacceptable. And uh, And he understood and he apologized and we shook hands and I continued on my run. So that was a moment where, you know, not, not every not every story ends like that and not every story has a happy ending, I should say, but but this one did and it was largely based on my previous experience and and using, you know, that failed interaction as an opportunity to form for myself uh what a successful interaction would look like. And so I, I was very happy with with how things ended. It's interesting. You say you're a runner. You're doing something that's very visible, I dare say even vulnerable. I'm a runner myself, so I understand the experience of just running by yourself through the streets. You're very visible. You're a sick person who's just running through the streets, and so strangers are getting strangers are getting a chance to just be more aware that you're there. Yeah, that's right. And and you know, it's it's something that I've actually picked up very intentionally. I, I didn't like running as as a teenager. Uh, I was on the cross country team, but really I did it for my soccer training because you know sports were more interesting to me than running. And and as when I moved to New York, actually, I became more serious about running because I saw it as a way to shatter people's stereotypes. When they see someone with a turban and beard, they assume that this is somebody who is backwards, foreign, you know, not part of our culture. And if I start engaging in activities that are very much part of the normative culture uh, and running has become that, then just simply seeing me out there, you know, doing what everyone else is doing. I don't have to do anything special. I can just have my headphones in and listen to my music or my podcast or whatever, but that it becomes a it becomes a political act, right? Like people just see me uh, and it, it makes a statement. In in today's America, right, just looking different in any way is a political decision. It's a political act. And so, yeah, doing so while running, I think I, I've tried to use it as a tool for advocacy and, and justice. It's a political act, that's for sure. But something very silly I've wondered, as a runner who gets very warm, um, is the turban hot while you're running? <laughs> Probably. I guess I've never run without a turban, so I couldn't, I don't have a point of comparison. <laughs> so... Yeah, I do. I do wear smaller turbans for running, lighter turbans. So I've run in. I've run in my sort of the the larger turban that I wear for working, and and that definitely gets hotter. So, but the lighter turbans seem seem just fine for me. I'm waiting for the day that they that they develop the the what are they called microfiber dry fit turbans. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's what I'm waiting for. They should. Someone needs to jump on that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If I if I had any business savvy, I would do it. But 
yeah, not for me. Hopefully someone who's listening to this goes, oh, what a great opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Besides wearing a turban, which I would ask you the significance of, and I will, so I guess that's my first question. Are there any other outward ways you're compelled to live? Any other aspects to do with your presentation or ritual in your life that you're called to do as a Sikh person? Yeah, so I'll say there there are a few things that are, mm, I guess you could call part of religious law or religious discipline in some sense. The the identity is one of them, and it's the one people ask about most because it's the most distinct and noticeable. So we have five articles of faith we maintain. The turban is not technically one of them, but it is something that become has become part of the parcel of the tradition. So the, the turban and the facial hair comprise the most noticeable uh, aspects of the identity. There is a, a, a bracelet that Sikhs wear called a kara. That is, you can see that probably just as easily as anything else. And then there are other aspects that typically are concealed under the clothes. So the ganga, which is a comb that's worn in the hair, the kachera, which is like soldier shorts, like boxer shorts, essentially. The kirpan, which is like a small dagger, a small sword. Yeah. And and so what's, I guess, interesting about the turban in particular, you were asking, um, what's interesting there is that the turban has historically been worn by royalty in you know the South and Central Asian context. So in a sense, wearing the turban is a proclamation of sovereignty, of royalty. And the idea in our tradition is that everyone is equally divine, equally royal, equally sovereign. And so everybody should have the opportunity to wear the turban. Wow, that's, uh, wow, that royalty aspect is a really beautiful idea. Are women, is there an opportunity for them to wear the turban as well? Or is it just a male tradition? It's both. Today, men wear, tur- you'll see more men wearing turbans than women. But women are, women have in, in the Sikh tradition, again, if we go back to the core theologically, all people are equally divine. We all have the divine within us. And so there's no room for discrimination of any kind. So women enjoy every right uh, within, you know, Sikh practice as men do, uh, at least theologically so. Another another example of, of how this manifests itself in the tradition is the incorporation of names. So you'll notice that a lot of Sikhs have the last name Singh for men and Kaur for women, K-A-U-R. Both of those are royal last names. And the Sikh gurus essentially said, if last names are a way of indicating someone's social status and used as a basis for discrimination, then let's eradicate you know, last names as a practice, and all adopt the same name, which indicates a single familyhood, right, an inequality, a connectedness, but also lifts up people into a royal sovereign class. So all people perceive themselves as kings and queens, as sings and gores. And that's been a practice that's continued over time. No one is lower than another. Exactly. And again, you know, there's always a difference between religious belief and religious practice. And so if you look at any 
community, uh, they don't live up to their ideals. And, and while they would say that nobody should be mistreated for any aspect of identity, uh, it still happens and it's unfortunate, but you know, it happens just like with any other community. It can be hard sometimes to defend your religious community against accusations of people not living up to what the belief is. Coming from a faith tradition where there are a lot of people that, in my opinion, are not practicing the faith the way they should be, or are basically mistreating others, I found that to be an interesting experience, having to defend my own denomination from, or myself as a Christian, from other people who aren't necessarily living it out in a just way. And I mean, I guess maybe that's just my lot in life for being part of such a huge faith community, that there just are going to be people who aren't doing it right. Yeah, exactly. And it's especially hard as a minority tradition where people don't actually know about you. It becomes really dangerous if their first impression or only impression of your tradition is based on some sort of, you know, negative action that someone else has taken. And that could be, you know, something as egregious as violence, or it could be something as small as, uh, I don't know, shoplifting. But in any of those cases, when that's the only point of reference they have for your tradition, then it's, it's hard for people to not form some sort of opinion about an entire group of people based on that single interaction. So that's where it becomes increasingly important for me to have more sick and minority representation generally in popular media, right? Because it shouldn't be the case that people are encountering, you know, a Sikh or a Muslim or a Hindu for the first time and the only time, you know, in in the streets or in the store or wherever, we should have, you know, a representation in our media spaces where people can get a sense of these people as just people, uh, as opposed to, you know, some broadly sweeping stereotype or a trope that then becomes really dangerous for how we perceive one another. Well, there's the idea that the turban is dangerous somehow, that there's something being hidden under it, that the, that it conceals something, some sort of weapon somehow. Is the small sword, is that kept underneath the turban or close to your waist? It's not usually kept under the turban. Um, it's usually kept, um, yeah, close to the waist uh, in, a, in a sort of sheath. But yeah, there is, I, I don't know where these tropes come from all the time, uh, but there is, you know, I've, I heard growing up regularly, especially from soccer and basketball referees who would say, you know, we can't let you play because we don't know what you're hiding under there. You could have grenades in there. You could have bombs in there. There are all sorts of knives, all sorts of accusations we heard over the years. Actually, we had to we eventually had to get letters from state and national governing organizations that said we were allowed to play with turbans because we had such a problem with with refs and opposing teams saying you know we don't we don't know what they're hiding underneath the turban wow really yeah yeah exactly and this is again this is when we were kids we were <laughs> teenagers adolescents and so yeah i guess i guess people don't always think about the fact that like being so visibly different is not just a uh, hey, a hate crime can happen to you at any moment. It's it's also like a, you know, growing up, even today, day-to-day -day activities, like you, you encounter things that other people just don't even imagine. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a very regular experience. Have there ever been moments where you think, 
maybe I'll just discard these outward aspects of my faith? For me personally, I think that when I was a small child, I think when I was in elementary school and we had some bullying, I vaguely remember wanting to do so. And actually, I haven't ever even talked to my parents about it. So I, I, yeah, I should confirm if that's if that's true. But I, I, I have vague memories of that. Since then, no, and especially not now. I think now my my position is essentially twofold. One, racism is a lot deeper than people like to believe. And so simply taking off my turban and beard and trying to blend in won't, won't win me much favor anyway, at least not from the perspective. It might make my experiences a little bit easier when I go through airport security or, you know, when I when I'm walking around in public, but it's not like it would resolve all my problems. And then the second piece of that is, you know, I'm very I'm very proud of the sick tradition of standing up for injustice and essentially absorbing injustice for other oppressed communities. And what I mean by that is there have been other moments in history that I look to where Sikhs have not been the primary targets, but they've taken on um, the brunt of the injustice willingly as a way, as an opportunity to stand for their values. And, and I really see this moment as, as something similar, perhaps, you know, a bit smaller in scale. But I, but I see it as, you know, as strange as it may sound, it's, it's a sort of a privilege to be able to use, you know, my, my life as a way of serving those who, who are being targeted otherwise. What do you mean by taking on the brunt of the injustice? Um, so, so for example, in, in, in our modern context, in, in, the, in the case of anti-Muslim sentiment, right, there is a large majority of anti-Muslim, and I, well, let me say it this way, the phenomenon of Islamophobia that we're witnessing today has a very strong racial component. So it doesn't always matter if you are Muslim, it just matters if you look like a Muslim. And, and six fit into that racialized identity quite squarely uh, with our turbans, our beards, our brown skin. You know, we, we're, we very much fit the stereotype of what a Muslim terrorist might look like, right, quote unquote. And because of that and because of how distinctive we are in the public square, six have been targeted disproportionately for hate violence in, in anti-Muslim moments especially. But what I've what I've seen is, and what we've continued to see, is that in these moments, Sikhs don't step back and say, "Hey, you got the wrong person. Go get them instead." They've been saying, "You know, what you're doing is wrong." That is a lot to take on, to be willing to accept racism that's being lobbed at someone who is ostensibly not you. In terms of, in terms of what you're called to do in your faith, how old are you? Um, I am, <laughs> uh, give me a second, 33. 33. I'm, I'm, I'm so old that it doesn't matter how old I am. I don't remember anymore. Are there things that your faith calls you to do, uh, things that it calls you to abstain from, ways that you live your life that might make you different from other people your age? Yeah, I, so, so I would say that the Sikh tradition is relatively relaxed on rules, it's not sort of a legalistic tradition, uh, but there are a few that are 
when when one takes initiation, and not everybody does, but when one takes initiation, then there are a few hard and fast rules that six that six follow. And one of those is to avoid intoxicants of any kind, and that means no no smoking, no drinking. And so, yeah, I had a I had a full, complete, happy <laughs> college experience without any alcohol, believe it or not. <laughs> so it was uh, it was very different than what most of my what most of my friends uh, experienced in college. And um, and yeah, it's it's one of those things where are we understand our discipline to be particular to ourselves, but not necessarily something we expect other people to follow. So it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not, there's no judgment that comes with choosing not to drink or to smoke. That's just what we decide to do. Can you convert to Sikhism? Um, One can, if they would like to. Our basic outlook is that one can be of any faith and, and achieve God. And so because of that, there's never really been a strong urge to convert people. We don't have, you know, a tradition of missionizing or proselytizing. And so we don't necessarily go out and try to have people convert. But if they'd like to, they're welcome to. They're encouraged to learn about the faith. If And if they're interested, you know, they're welcome to join. There's no restriction on that. But there's also, you know, no real emphasis on that either. At the end of the day, Sikhs are just <laughs> looking to be recognized as people and treated as people. And so this is this is true for a lot of minority communities who are being dehumanized right now. And so, yeah, I, I encourage people to learn about the faith, but also uh, if you're interested, actually go out and spend some time with these with these folks uh, and, and learn about them, you know, as as the whole complete nuanced people that they are. So I didn't know much about Sikhism before this. I knew it was a peaceful religion and that most of the guys wore turbans, but I didn't know that his faith actually compels him to try to make the world a better place. Christianity, which I grew up with, does that sort of, but helping other people is often seen as a veiled way to bring them to Jesus. It was cool to talk to someone who's so grounded in their own rituals, but still has a very enlightened view of other religions. So found Simran pretty well-spoken and thoughtful for someone in his early 30s. I hope I can get to the point where I've not only made peace with what I believe, that I can actually explain my own beliefs to other people in an articulate way. I'm Emma Prestwich, and thanks for listening to this episode of Congregation, brought to you by HuffPost Canada. If you enjoyed our conversation, leave us a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss future shows.